0: welcome to another myths that make us podcast you eternity pretending to be bound by time and conditioned by a culture that is out of alignment with nature that is creating a hollowness in your core that makes you think that life is meaningless but it's because the life that you've been exposed to is out of accord welcome to another episode today we have on laura dawn who is someone that was connected to me by my therapist. Um, at the beginning of this year, I finally became humble enough through suffering to finally let someone hold space for me. And that has been one of the most important things that I've done um, in my development. And he has connected me to this superhero, uh, Laura Don, who I can't even really do it justice. I think you're just going to have to hear the way that she speaks and what her story is. This is truly one of the uh, deepest podcasts that I can remember having done where the felt sense was able to happen over Zoom in the way that it happens in person. And that's a testament to what she is and how she is in the world. You're going to like this one. If you would like to support this podcast and keep me from selling you the newest type of duct tape or the newest type of thing to put into your mouth to really stain it, but you believe it's whitening and it's actually eroding the health of your mouth, uh, there's a couple of ways that you can support this podcast. <laughs> and uh, the best way is to hop on the newsletter at erigazzi.com. There's also my "Make Your Myth" journaling course, which is for people who want to begin the practice of journaling and recognize that they're probably lying to themselves and everyone in their life in order to fit in. That's what it did for me. Um, and then there's the Dharma Journal, which is the other course that I have that. Uh, if you want to amplify that intuitive whisper that is telling you that the relationship that you are in or that the job you are at or the way that you cope with your friends is not the way and you've been ignoring it, if you want to amplify that voice so it utterly destroys your life so it can open you up to the life that is meant for you, check out the Dharma Journal. It'll ruin your life. (laughs) Um, It truly is the set of practices that I've used to basically ruin the life that I had that, um, wasn't fulfilling me. So check that out at your own peril. And as always, you can share this podcast with anyone that you think it will help. Thank you for your attention in this crazy, chaotic world and for, uh, your awareness and your love. And without further ado, Laura Dawn's myth. P.S if you reach out to her she prefers LD or Laura Don. I called her Laura. Laura Don. I apologize. All right, without further further ado. Laura Don Smith. Welcome to the podcast. Uh I appreciate you saying yes to coming on and it's it's interesting how we met. Um I started to for the first time at the beginning of this year begin to have a coach coach me, you know. I've never been in a place because what I studied was psychology, um, I wouldn't let anyone teach me or like hold space for me. And it's a whole thing, but it's because I didn't feel like I could rely on my dad. So I had this unconscious belief that I couldn't feel like I could actually rely on someone. But anyways, started that process. It's been absolutely beautiful. And once he got to know me more, he was like, you've got to connect with my friend, Laura. And then he connected us, we got on the phone, I just heard what you had done and what you are doing and what your background is and what you're interested in. And I knew I had to have you on the podcast and I'm excited for people through this podcast to uh, learn more about who and what you are. So I just wanted to say thank you and kind of give people a idea of how we connected.
1: Hmm. Well, it's such a pleasure to be here with you, Eric. This is really nice. I'm so happy to be on the show with you.
0: So the question that I like to get the myth unfolding rolling is let's say that I just witnessed you do something that puts you into flow and -hmm. then I came up afterwards. So you're Mm -hmm. in like a peak state and I ask you, who are you? What do you do? What would you say?
1: Well, gosh, who am I? I feel like is just an ongoing process and I think that when I'm in flow, I realize that more than ever is that there is this sense of identity that we as humans tend to cling to. You know, we spend our whole lives like fortifying this sense of self. And when I'm in flow, I feel that channel open up that reminds me of just how much more expanded a human I really am and how when I'm just walking in my day-to-day reality it's so within a box framework of this is who I am and I think that's so much of the work and what really interests me is actually expanding the boundaries of who we think we are what we think is possible and besides working with plant medicines that, you know, we could go into the science behind that with the default mode network and all of that, you know, but aside from that, you know, it allows us to really just question who we are. Yeah. And I think the the flow state experience tends to be at least like the more day-to-day accessible, you know, I really actually construct my whole life. Like I see my life as like the scaffolding to support ongoing flow states. And I think the more I'm in flow, the more that I really feel that expanded sense of being a conduit for creativity and my connection to spirit being very alive. And so when you would walk up to me and you would ask me like, who am I? I would say something along the lines of like, I'm so much more than I even really know. So I don't know. It's yeah. It lies in the unknown, which is essentially what it means to be a visionary on a certain level. And yeah. if you were to ask me, what do I do? I would say I am this channel of transmission, transmitting this frequency of inspiration to other people around me. That's the essence of what I do is getting into yeah. that that vibrational frequency of inspiration. And it's what I live for. It's what I build my whole life around and to really be such a strong transmission for the The message that comes through that anchoring rod from great spirit through my body, anchoring it into this earth through all the myriad of forms that that takes, which is what it means to be creative by definition of just being alive.
0: Mm. Mm. How would your best friend describe you and what you do?
1: Probably using the word inspiring. That's really, uh, I think the essence of it, you know, and I think a lot of people are like, well, I just want to really inspire people. But I really think I take this to like a very deep level of what that means to me and how I build my life around that. And really, I mean, there's so many threads of what I'm really doing. You know, I, as I hopped on here before we just got started, we just had a moment to drop in. and I mentioned, you know, I'm starting tomorrow's the first meeting of my microdosing mastermind. So that's a big key pillar of what I do. You know, i'm I'm a microdosing mentor, and I work with a range of people. and I weave together different modalities, but I'm working a lot with with leaders and weaving together somatic coaching, with mindset coaching, leadership training and different practices. And it's all sort of rooted in the foundation of Eastern philosophy and looking at how can we leverage these windows of slightly enhanced cognitive flexibility to essentially expand the boundaries of what we believe is possible and come to know ourselves to be greater than we thought ourselves to be. And I think mm. that that's in essence what'm I'm, I'm really doing. And, and in this program too, I'm also really inspiring people to cultivate their own thought leadership. And what does that look like? and how do we build our lives to support ourselves as the leaders that we are, whether we're you know stepping into a boardroom or stepping out onto the field, you know there's so many ways that that we can define leadership these days. And so, yeah, I'm primarily working with people in the psychedelic space, but a lot of my one-on-one coaching clients are, you know, everyone from MDs to five-time CEOs to working with people who work at publicly traded companies who train their leaders at their companies. And so, you know, I I am working with, um, yeah, a lot of high high high-level people. We also have a mutual friend, Joe Holly. He's been a client and a friend. So I'm also starting to work more and more with pro athletes, which has been really fun. I was also raised as an athlete. That was like the first sort of seven years of the imprinting of my life was, (laughs) was training in sports. And that's a unique kind of, you know, that shapes you into a unique kind of mindset, I would say. And so all the things, you know, have really influenced the work that I do. I was also raised by two entrepreneurs. So my whole life, I've never, I've always watched my parents, um, Yeah, approach life from this mindset of possibility. And one of the earliest beliefs that my father gave me was whatever you see in your mind, you can create in reality. And I really appreciated that kind of upbringing. Mm -hmm. You know, I was like, at family dinners on Sunday, we'd meet together for family dinners. And it was like, pitch your idea by dessert. (laughs) Wow. <laughs> so it was like eight That's years cool. old being like okay like what about this idea you know and then that coupled with my mother who always told me you know I trust your judgment whatever mm-hmm. you want to do in this life I trust your judgment you got a good head on your shoulder so you know make make the best decisions for for what you want to do and I was always kind of a kid who beat to my own drum you know I was always that kid who was like oh gosh, everyone's going left. I wonder what's right. (laughs) You know, like, I wonder what's over in this direction. And that I just had always like super strong propensity to want to explore the unknown and like really kind of hurl myself over the unknown uh, and over the cliff, you know, into the abyss. And I had my first high dose psilocybin journey when I was about 14, 15, like early days, you know, really big journeys that have really shaped who I am and the work that I do today without a doubt.
0: There are so many beautiful things that I want to go into, but I like asking some of these, uh, like context setting questions. So I'm going to resist the impulse and see if that's the right move. Um, how would your closest romantic partner describe you and what you do?
1: (laughs) Ambitious. I would say ambitious. You know, I'm, I, I don't know what it is. You know, I think it's partly like, in my DNA and also in my upbringing, you know, being trained in sports and, um, but I, I've always just had such a strong drive to establish myself in this world and influence change on a a really big level. You know, I remember when I was a kid, I would like not be able to fall asleep at night because I was so excited for the moment that I would go on Oprah (laughs) when I was like six. Yeah. (laughs) And now it's like Joe Rogan, (laughs) you know, that's what I think about now, but I'd love to still drop it with Oprah because like, she's legit and, um, and just, you know, following my life path in a way that's so outside of the box and so outside of like, what is sort of the norm of like, this is the way you should be doing things. This is what you need to be doing to establish quote unquote success. So also completely redefining like what success is and this notion of what I call soul centered success, you know, centering ourselves around what we really value and aligning with that. But I would say my closest romantic partners would, would probably call me, you know, um, well, I just asked the other night, my my lover, you know, what he loves about me. And he said, I really love that you really want to understand, like you really want to understand me. And there's like this place of like, really wanting to approach things with an open heart and an open mind. And then of course, you know, we're, like, that's not to say that I'm a just a, a wholehearted, amazing human. Like, I have, like, my own neuroticism and <laughs> places of, of, you know, all the things. Yeah. Like, all, all the things that come with, like, being a driven, ambitious human.
0: And how would your father describe you and what you do?
1: Oh, my gosh. These are such wild questions. I was not expecting this at all. Okay. So gosh, this is a tough one. Well, I know, well, my father almost just recently died and I haven't seen him in 10 years. It's been 10 years. We just reconnected, uh, this past like year and a half through, through email. And we had our first Skype call, uh, in a, in a long time. Gosh, this can make me cry right now, but, um, he would say he's proud of me, you know, and that, and that he, he would describe me as also his, my, I, I describe myself as my father's daughter because my father is a very ambitious entrepreneur as well. And, um, but I think he would describe me as, um, yeah, courageous for the work that I'm doing and, uh, probably stubborn and <laughs> a strong willingness to do what I want. You know, it was like, being 14 and my father saying, you can never get a tattoo. And it was like, that's it. I'm going out. I'm getting my tattoo, my butt tattooed, you know, I was like, picked it off the wall, like that flower, yep. put it on my ass right now. <laughs> <laughs> that's how that, that was my relationship to my father growing up. And, you know, I was also really grateful that they were very open-minded. They were very just overall supportive for me and my path.
0: I love that. And how would your mother describe you and what you do?
1: Oh man. Okay. So recently I, um, I had to put out a really special episode on the psychedelic leadership podcast and I almost didn't release it. Okay. So if anyone wants to listen to that, it actually really got, I think it's my most second, most downloaded episode, but right behind Bruce Lipton's and I had a woman come and talk about the teachings of Ho'oponopono, this Hawaiian beautiful Mm. elder. And I had my mom come on for Mother's Day. She joined us for the episode and my mom and I did like real time Ho'oponopono together. And so I I just want to actually just like share what transpired. And I I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And then after it happened, I was like, oh my God, this is way too personal. Like there's no way I'm putting this out there. I actually have goosebumps right now as I'm sharing this. But uh, last year I had a a really deep journey with ayahuasca and you know, it's so amazing. Like you can journey with plant medicines for 20 years and then 20 years in still have new real insights come to the surface. And I had a very clear vision that night that something happened while my mom was pregnant with me and we're really close. We've been through a lot. Like I call it the family trauma drama. Mm -hmm. So my family's really been through a lot. I'm the youngest of four children. And it's been a lot with my parents, and their divorce was really, really messy and hard on all of us. And part of the reason that I just like needed to get the fuck away, and you know, packed up my life and put it in a backpack, and I left home, and I never went back. And I did that at a very young age, partly because of all of the just the hard drama. But my mom has always been just such a close ally for me in my life, and. So I called her after this journey and she knows she's been tracking my my work with plant medicines and she's so proud of the work that I'm doing now. You know, she's like, just like, I knew it. I knew you were onto something, you know, wow. 20 years ago, no one was talking about psychedelics the way that they are today. But so I called my mom. I know this is a really long story, but it's I just perfect. really wanted to share. So thanks for entertaining this for me. So I call my mom and my mom says, well, I asked her, you know, I was like, tell me everything about what happened when you were pregnant with me. And she just immediately started crying. And she never told me that actually quite far along in the pregnancy, she was planning to have an abortion. And so she actually went to the clinic and she was there like ready to abort me. And just very last minute, she was like, I can't do this. And so she decided to give me a chance. And in the Ho'oponopono episode that just went out a few weeks ago for Mother's Day, she was just like bawling and crying. We we're both bawling. we were both crying. And she was asking me for my forgiveness for something that happened before I was even born, but that really impacted my DNA. Like I felt yeah. it you know, and, and drawing upon that tool of Ho'oponopono while I was in that ceremony was really helpful because I knew something was there and it had imprinted this sense of not belonging and Mm. watching, like witnessing all of the manifestations of that trauma of feeling like not belonging was so interesting to like witness the way that that had manifested in my life throughout the years, consciously and subconsciously. And it was really powerful to be in that ceremony and just to like really forgive my mother for that. And then we did it in real time and she asked for my forgiveness and I forgave her. And I could feel like the knots, you know, these knots of blockages, like that's what prevents flow states really is when we're not in right relationship with ourselves and our bodies and our mothers and our fathers. And so, yeah, and I'm, I'm really about due for a ho'oponopono with my father as well. Mm. Definitely due for that, especially given this recent scare with this accident he just had and really realizing like he really doesn't have that much time left on this planet and we don't know none of us know how much time we have so how would my mother describe me she would describe me as also very strong willed and that that you know, she is just so proud of me for sticking with the psychedelic path for all of these years because I knew in my heart, you know, years ago, like we would trip and I would look at the people I'm tripping with and we would really look at each other like, wow, psychedelics could really save the world. Like, and genuinely mean that, like in peak moments of like feeling the oneness of love and like Communicating that back then, people were like, wow, you are such a tripping hippie. Like, it's not even funny. And I was like, no, really, there's something here. There really is. And now it's like the whole world is catching up. So that's nice.
0: There's so much about that. That is so beautiful. I've got a couple more questions and then we'll just let it go where it wants to go. Thank you for that. And I can't (laughs) wait to check out that episode. The next question is um, some people call it God or Source or you know whatever but when you are in relation with that how would that thing describe what laura is and what laura is doing Hmm.
1: i mean that's there's not even a word for that is there it's ineffable i mean it's not even there's yeah yeah Can I, can I like pass? Like pass? (laughs) Next question. No, I mean, it's just like, there's not, how do you even put a word on something like that? And you know what I love is that like different cultures have different words that we don't have in the English language that also really point to something. So wouldn't that be amazing if there was a word that could point to that? But then even that, it would just be sort of like a signpost pointing in the direction. You can't, I don't think, ever really put your finger on being the expression, the physical manifestation of source energy of spirit, you know, and that's sort of my, my, my perceptual conceptual framework is that everything emanates everything that we see in this solid 3d reality emanates from that realm. And that's what shamanism essentially is. It's tapping into that realm as an inspired visionary And so, I I mean, that's the whole, the whole joy of, of how I live is like tapping into those realms, holding a vision, and then having the joy of watching that vision coalesce and condense into slower vibrational frequencies until we see it in this manifest reality. And that's, that's essentially also really what I'm teaching, but not that I really, you know, not from an expert, just from a student perspective,
0: I love that, and I know exactly what you mean, and so I understand. What is your first memory?
1: Oh, as soon as you said that, I just pictured my my father holding me under my armpits as just like a little munchkin. And like he would, he would, um, swing me over the side of the pool. And, and he, he was like really encouraging me to, uh, to learn how to swim. I was a water baby. I, I used to compete in diving. And my first memory I think was, or one of them was just him s- swinging me and going, one, two, three, and then letting me go and just like plopping me in the deep end. (laughs) That's like one of my early memories. And then another memory of, um, jumping off the, the three meter diving board for the first time being really young. And, um, yeah, those are some of my early, and then I've gone into really early memories of like the house that I lived in, like when I was just like one years old, I can remember just like basic things like that. I also remember this sort of traumatic moment I had when my brothers, my two older brothers were wrestling and I was like so excited because they were just like fooling around in the living room. And like, I was just getting all excited. And I remember like hitting my brother with this, wood duck that he made me and he got really angry and he turned around and he grabbed it and he like snapped it over his knee and I was like oh my god I'm so sorry yeah things like that I remember falling off my balcony those are early memories all the traumatic ones, but also like the family dinners. That's what I think about when, I, yeah. when I'm like, when I go back to to my childhood memories, but that was the first one. My dad like swinging me over the the edge of the pool and like counting to three and then letting me go in the deep end and being like, you got this, yeah. you can do it.
0: So I want to share my uh, conceptual framework about why I asked that question and see if anything comes up for you. Um my intuition is that our first memories that we can remember when we're asked a question like that uh, have a emotional quality to them that is a it's the root of like a key part of either how we think about the world or how we express in the world and that it can be symbolic and when I hear you talking about your first memory being uh, the archetypical father getting you ready to jump into the deep end and that you had a deep psychedelic experience when you were 14 and that you were at the crescent of this wave jumping into the deep end early. Um, The fact that you laugh feels like you see what I see there. And what's interesting is most people don't share more than one. And my intuition is that because you've done as much work as you've done your unconscious mind which is the part that brings up all those different images it feels like it's um a gift for you to sit with later or unless it comes up intuitively now that uh maybe an archetypical part of when you get out of balance is the duck snap snapping Mm -hmm. incident Uh, that one of the things that you most love is whatever the feeling of the dinners together are. Mm -hmm. And that something about when you make a a mistake that creates an ouchie, Mm -hmm. that that is somehow associated with the falling off the roof thing. Mm -hmm. And that's why I asked that question. And if anything comes up, I would love to hear it because you did laugh. And so it feels like you are seeing what I'm seeing. Mm
1: -hmm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely, I was like, am I, am I paying you for this uh, psycho <laughs> <wall> discussion? <laughs> Shit, am I supposed to PayPal you this, uh, like a, a check after this? Um, I really appreciate that though. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think there was also a really strong, um, There's a strong imprinting, you know, for better and for worse. And I think that that's also it's like so much of our strengths can also be a double edged sword that we really have to be so mindful of. When I when my mother was, you know, she had four young kids and no education. And so and she wanted to leave my father. She wanted to leave that marriage. And it it was really hard for her. And I remember, you know, she would wake up at three o'clock in the morning and she put herself back through graduate school. She got a degree in psychology and she opened up her own private practice, but it made her very absent in my I had a very, uh, unsupervised, uh, childhood, basically, you know, my, my parents were very MIA for better or for worse. And I remember my mom, you know, showing me like, okay, this is how you make dinner. I'm not cooking for you anymore. I love you. This is how you use the washing machine. And, you know, that was at like seven or eight years old. And, uh, and I also watched like the subtle cues and I remember these feeling, and I don't know if this is a story I'm making up. I've repeated this a couple of times, but I feel like, or the story that I'm telling myself is that she said to me when I was a child, like never rely on someone else like this. Like never put yourself in this position. Like always make sure that you can take care of yourself financially and be successful. And I think that that also is like very strong imprinting you know, because she wanted to be independent, but she had four kids and no education and she couldn't leave. And so she was trapped and she put her own life on a shelf for very many years. And maybe that's also influenced like why I don't want to have children. (laughs) Maybe that's also really a big part of that. Like, I don't feel like it's my path actually. And I always respect women who just really feel like that's their path. But I really like birthing, books and podcasts and businesses and retreat centers and creating in a different way is just what feels alive for me in this way in this life.
0: Yeah, one of the things that I feel um arise is Carl Jung had this quote where he talks about uh the unlived life of the parents will haunt the child and that it seems to be that there is a certain type of adult who if they had a genuine dream and they um didn't make the full like spiritual transformation required to be what it costs to be a mother or a father that there's some you know like bound energy that almost needs to co- to come out and then it's shared with the child as either their aspirations or their like mm-hmm. this is the strategy that you have to follow because it's not the strategy that I followed and the thing that I can feel into there is like my mom's unlived dream of being a writer was actually a really strong imprinting in me to want to be good with language and you know now one of my dreams is to be a writer and you know mm-hmm. to uh so haunting feels like it's a it's putting a twist on it that might not be necessary but that um the unlived life of our parents can either become uh part of our dream or a part of something that is being asked to be healed Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and maybe making it a dream is a way to heal it. I don't know. Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, I like to think that the manifestation of the thing, like the, you know, I have also two published books and that was two of the hardest experiences of my life as well. Super challenging. Like for anyone out there who's (laughs) writing a book, I just, I feel for you. Um, it's, it's, and it's such an amazing thing to accomplish, but like the, having the book in the hand, you know, and the actual just end result, you know, I've also built a retreat center and created a lot in my life, but it's not the thing. That is the thing. It's actually the process of who we become along the way. Yep. And so, it, when from that perspective, it's like there is no sort of success or failure, it's just how we grow and how holding a vision and bringing that fruition that vision into fruition shapes us into the person that we're becoming. And that's like the shaping and that's really the the gem. And then no one can take that away from you, whether you write the book or don't write the book, you know, although I'm all for like anchoring visions and like bringing it through and making it happen. But then, you know, when I went through the really devastating experience of pouring five years into my, of my life into this beautiful retreat center, and then having this sort of proverbial rug get pulled from out from under me with the, volcanic eruption a few years ago, I learned a lot through that experience of needing to hold all of our creations lightly and just the, the bitter of what impermanence really means yeah. and how we can actually make peace with that on a daily basis in our lives.
0: Mm. I would love to, so one of the things that I find with most people is, um, especially people that end up at a point where they're on a podcast because that's a unique type of unfolding, that there is a first dream that is um, almost unconsciously coming through. And it's for sure like an ego-based dream, you know, because it comes up in childhood and that um, it's either accomplished and the hollowness is found or life punches you in the face and then you go through your first like death, like true, like kind of existential death and I'll give an example so mm-hmm. I can help anchor you into what I'm looking for for me it was for sure basketball that I didn't have anything mm-hmm. that really inspired me until I was about 10 wasn't good was super goofy was super oversized didn't know how to use my body <laughs> and then by the end of the first season you know I was regarded as like the top kid in my age group in my small town and I found my thing and I thought I'm going to be a basketball player. This is my this is my goal. This is my destiny. And then I tore my rotator cuff when I was a junior in high school. Mm-hmm. And It took about four years to really surrender, and uh, that was kind of my like first death. And then you know I had to go through this death process, and then I eventually found a new thing. Um, so what I'm asking is, what was kind of your first? Oh, this is what I'm going to do with my life. And, um, how are you disappointed essentially is what I'm asking.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Very similar. You know, I lived and breathed the notion that there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to the Olympics. Like that was my whole upbringing. I had a very, just like kind of reversed story from you and that experience that when I, started training at a very young age, I was naturally really good at everything that I did. And so I didn't really know, I didn't have almost any experiences for like years and years and years of losing. And that wasn't really healthy, actually. Like yeah. in hindsight, it was it was a really hard portal to go through later in life of, of accepting that I can't be the best at everything. And, um, yeah. So when I, I started, uh, training in gymnastics when I was really, really young and then I went through a growth spurt and I was pretty much told like, Hey, you can't do gymnastics anymore because you're like now taller than everyone else. But even in those years that I was training, you know, I was competing and, it was like my whole life revolved around sports. Like I was never considered myself smart or very good at school. I hated school. I actually just really always wanted to be training or sleeping and dreaming. That was like my other, pretty much like my my favorite reality was my dream reality. I would like count the minutes between, Recess and lunch, and be like, is it over yet? So I could go home and go back into my dream world because I really loved it. It was so alive for me. But besides that, it was training. And so, and I played a lot of different sports, but it was primarily gymnastics and uh, track and field. And I did high jump and I was the highest jumper in Quebec for four years in a row and no one could beat my record. And, you know, I was, all my coaches were always like top coaches. So my parents would like scout out the best coaches and then, you know, they would basically take me on. And, and then I dove for years. I dove for a long time until I hit a sort of a wall around diving. And it's, it's actually, I don't, I haven't really shared this publicly, but, um, one of the coaches that was training me was, I, I don't I want to sort of use like abusive with co- quotation marks. but like if we missed the dive, I would like come up from the water to him like throwing his sandal at my head and just thought that that was okay and that that was normal, you know, and that it was like okay. And like, I just noticed my performance actually started really declining and I had a pretty bad accident um, doing a backflip off of, uh, the five meter. I was training for five meter and, um, yeah, I, I had a pretty, just a rough fall and, um, I just like felt the disappointment, you know, from my coach and, um, and I, and so I actually started playing water polo and I had been playing summer water polo, but then I got recruited to like play all year round And I actually can't share what happened there because it's super personal, but I ended up stepping off the team for a number of reasons, but pretty much, so my coach, Pat Oten, was the Olympic team coach and all of most of my friends, some of my friends from that I'm still friends with from Montreal went to the Olympics. And I had this really trippy moment, Eric, where when I left and I decided to, you know, not to stop playing basically because I had act- at that point um, the rave scene in Montreal was like really taking off and I had been training my whole life and I was about like 15 at this point and I was just starting to party and feel like you know oh my god there's so much more to life and I started dating someone who was a lot older than me at that moment who was like involved in the water polo world and it was complicated and messy and I started partying A lot and, uh, you know, MDMA and speed and all the things. And I decided to step out of playing water polo. And in hindsight, I'm actually really happy that I did. I know a lot of people who still played and they got paid, you know, pretty good to play, but it was just such a job and like lots of travel and all the things. But super trippy moment where like years later I was on acid in Thailand and I walked into this like huge outdoor party that had this massive screen and they were playing the worlds. Um, it was like the, the competition to who like the qualifying round to get into the Olympics. And I saw my coach and some of my friends on the screen and I was high on LSD in Thailand. And I was like, wow, this is a parallel universe moment, and I just saw my whole life going in that direction, going to the Olympics. and you know what? I know I could have made it if like in whatever sport, if I had really dedicated to that, but I just I just didn't want that to be my life, and I'm so grateful now that it it you know it wasn't
0: That's so beautiful. and so it sounds like the crisis point was around fifteen. Or 14?
1: Yeah, yeah. Definitely moving through that time. I would say like I was still really into like training and athletics and like all of that. And I would say around like 17, 18, maybe even later, like 19, I went through like my first real identity crisis of like, I am not an athlete anymore. Right. Like, and I re- really remember that portal of like, holy shit, like I self-identified for even years, I would say after that of like, yeah. really, that was my identity. And then, yeah, having that, it was like in that. And then even I remember, you know, in my early twenties, I did a lot of psychedelics after university and when I was traveling, backpacking all throughout Southeast Asia. And I even remember some of those journeys still grieving that the loss of that identity you know and still having those journeys of processing that and and you know at that time i was like really getting into surfing i spent years of my life surfing all over the world and um really enjoyed it so i was like athletic in other ways but um just like the notion of not going to the olympics i remember some journeys of like still processing that and like still needing to make peace with that
0: i would love to zoom in um if you could kind of tell us the story of that of those bridging years between the death of the athlete and then the birth of whatever the next dream was, it sounded like it was at least three or four years, maybe more. So if you could kind of, I would love to hear the story of that bridging Mm -hmm. moment, Mm -hmm. heavy air quote on moment. (laughs) And then um, what was the first inkling of the birth of the next life, essentially?
1: Gosh, yeah. There's definitely not a moment because I still feel like I'm in the process of it, you know. I'm still in it in in a lot of ways. But um, in those years, I struggled with disordered eating, and um, yeah. And so I kind of hit a rock bottom moment after I went to university. I, I say it's like my past life. I have a degree in finance and entrepreneurship. So there's that. And, and I, after that, I, I really, you know, I was in a very sort of quote unquote elite program. I was in this, in a program with eight other students managing a million dollar portfolio. And it was like, you know, just sort of high level for where I was at as at that age. And I was investing my own money in the stock market. And I was like very immersed in like economy, you know, and just was being sort of primed to go and step into some high level, like jobs in the, in the financial markets in Montreal. And everyone from the outside was like, wow, you are just, you know, on the fast track for success. And I was really unhappy. I was struggling with depression, with disordered eating. I was like, just making my way through the week and then like binge drinking, you know, it was like, not, it was not great. And I had my first sort of out of body experience and I was on the bathroom floor and I wrote about this in my first book actually. And I had the first moment of like looking at my life from outside of myself. And at this point, it's like I hadn't been training in years. And I was like, you know, still in this place of like, who am I? Even though success was definitely a strong imprint, but like, what does success want to look like? And I remember looking at myself from outside of myself and I had the first thought that ever occurred to me where I was like, actually, this doesn't have to be my life. Like, I don't even have to fucking live here. Like, I don't have to do this. You know, and I struggled with um, the winters. I struggled with seasonal affective disorder. The winters were really hard on my psyche. And in that moment, I decided to leave. And so I started preparing and I literally gave away everything that I owned and I packed a backpack and I left Montreal and I never went back. And that was it. And I still feel like I'm on the journey of a lifetime, but mm. I, um, I flew out to British Columbia and I hitchhiked across BC for three months and, one day this gentleman picked me up hitchhiking and we smoked a big spliff and went jumping off of cliffs into cold river water and just had an amazing day. And then he dropped me off at a spot where I popped my tent and, you know, kept going the next day and wasn't even like exchanging information or anything like that. But I ended up taking a one-way ticket to China because again, it was just like, how far off the deep end can I really go? You know, like what would that experience look like? So I literally took a one-way flight, to China it took me 3 hours to get out of the damn airport because I didn't speak Chinese I had no plans I didn't plan anything yeah. at all and it was really hardcore like talk about psychedelic trip and uh and I ended up backpacking all through uh China Southeast Asia into Laos Cambodia and I was in Thailand 6 months to the day and there was this whole crazy story that happened that day that I was just felt so clear that I needed to get to this spot and I got to that spot and I bumped into that gentleman that picked me up hitchhiking. And we ended up falling in love and spending wow. the next years of our lives together.
0: Wow! And so
1: yeah, it was just such a wild story. And we ended up spending years, um, surfing and motorbiking. And he was just such a, like an adventure sportist. And so we motorbiked, like we'd go on these really crazy trips and we motorbiked like the whole Thai Burma border and would just, you know, drop major hits of acid and go surfing like big wave surfing and just crazy things. You know, we did that for years. And then I was just ready. I felt I, I, and actually Why I brought that up was because he owns 150 acres of land in British Columbia and his family taught me how to homestead. And so, uh, there, it was the first experience. So I I was like traveling out of a backpack for a long time. And then, you know, I met him and I moved to his land and his family taught me how to, you know, the whole thing, like hardcore homesteading, off-grid living, compost toilets. I still have a compost toilet to this day. So it's been 15 years that I've been living off-grid, but his family taught me how to grow food. And it was that connection to the earth that I never really experience like that before. Like we really take it for granted when we, we grow up and we, our relationship to food is like walking up and down aisles with fluorescent lighting and shiny packages, you know, and we just don't even know like how to have a relationship with food. And so I found a lot of healing there. And, uh, and also through the work that I was doing with psychedelics and, um, And so I ended up going back to school and getting a degree in holistic nutrition. And so I ended up writing a book about food addiction. And I also wrote mindful eating for dummies, which they contacted me. i had built my, my brand. And actually during this whole time, I had been building an online brand that I built to a million and a half followers on Facebook. It was like early days, like Facebook had just come up with pages and my mom and I started this thing just like spreading positivity And so all of those years, I mean, this is crazy. For people who get SEO, I ranked number one on Google for the search term positive quotes for a solid decade. And so that's, that helped support my travels, (laughs) which to say the least, and also from the investments that I made that I sold, you know, and I was investing in like hardcore shit that I had to really make terms with, like I was covering the commodity sector. And so I was like investing in mining companies, you know, like it was like crazy. I can't even believe I'm like saying this publicly, but it was through my psychedelic journeys post-university that I really like, like major deprogramming happened and like major like okay this is fucked up like I can't do this anymore. So I'm like on this land in British Columbia and I'm healing my relationship to food. I end up writing two books and and then I just had the moment that I just knew I had to leave that that relationship. I just felt like something was bigger ready and I felt the call to Hawaii and so I ended up coming to the Big Island and working with ayahuasca here and as soon as I came here I had the vid- vision that I was going to build a retreat center. And I ended up meeting my husband to be, um, that week. Wow. So I ended wow. up building a retreat center, a volcanic hot spring retreat center. And when we bought the land, we actually didn't know that we were going to tap into hot water that flowed the initial flow of the hot water. Such a crazy story flowed at 111 degrees. And my birthday portal is also 111. And so it was like miracles upon miracles. Wow. And it was the moment that I bowed out Ayahuasca's altar that I knew that I was like, okay, I am your student now. You're my teacher. And what I feel like was the early imprinting of what it means to be a visionary from my father and also from sports, actually, because when I started training at a young age, my coaches taught me visualization and the power of using your mind to see yourself And so, and then sort of ayahuasca was like the third phase of that, of like, okay, now this is like the curriculum of what it means to walk the path of a visionary and what that really means. And so, yeah, we built an amazing retreat center. I sold the brand, the one that I grew to a million and a half followers. I sold that to build the retreat center, which was a huge, huge blessing. And then a couple of years ago, the volcano erupted and it was like, a full circle moment of needing to let go of everything that I had built. You know, we spent two weeks with gas masks on just ripping apart and getting as much stuff out, evacuating, you know, and We are so blessed that the lava didn't take our land, but we ended up selling it like while lava was still flowing like a mile away. And so it was a huge process of letting that go. And I still have 10 acres that I'm on next door. So I get to soak in the hot water every day. But I'm also going through another really big transition right now where I'm coming out of that marriage that I was in for a decade and, you know, just, just holding the vision for the next chapter of my life right now.
0: There's so much about that. That is so beautiful. The question that arises or before the question, uh, there's a pattern that I see that I would love to get your um, feedback or response to, but it seems to be that the people who are able to, uh, that once you heal a certain level of your relational wounds, you get to open up to the intuition of your heart Mm -hmm. And it seems like your heart will bring you to the next perfect lover Mm -hmm. that will be the vehicle for your higher self or whatever to bring to you the next like fundamental gift for whatever your ultimate dharmic expression is. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the two major ones or the first one was the adventuring and also the homesteading. Mm And then I'm curious what the past 10 year one was the big teaching for you. And does that pattern feel like that resonates with you?
1: Yeah, well, I would say the pattern is going through these moments of like really entering the cocoon of metamorphosis. So I think we do that essentially every time we drink medicine or we work with psychedelics, there's the capacity, there's an invitation for that to happen. We don't maybe always accept that invitation, but that could be one framework for which we could work with plant medicines. But I think for me, the narrative is that like we are moving from one chapter of human history into another And so the more that we are willing to accept this initiation, this rites of passage of letting go of the old to be able to open to a new chapter. And the more that we practice like meeting those moments of our lives where things fall apart, and that we go through that things falling apart so that we can go into the cocoon and revision what is to come next, the more we prepare ourselves to support other people going through these passages, because whether we like it or not, we're moving through it collectively right now. I don't think, I I think it would be pretty hard to argue against that, that we are moving through this collective transition, as Charles Eisenstein would call it, you know, the gap between two worlds. Where we're being, we've embedded our lives in systems that are falling apart. Yep. You know, we've embedded and built our lives upon political systems, economic systems, educational systems that aren't serving us anymore. And so a part of those cocoons of metamorphosis, it's inherent in having to let go. You cannot up-level. You can't up-level your life without choosing to let go. So I think that those those like moments that have really like punctuated the the stories of the the chapters of my life have really been such an opportunity for me to like really restructure and get clear on what I want to create next. And I have had this pattern. Well, the first one was leaving Montreal, leaving everything I knew to be true, starting all over again, leaving my last relationship, moving, like having that clear call. And it's like, once you get that message, it's hard to just like ignore it. You know, it was like, oh time to go. It's time to move on from this chapter. And it's like so bittersweet because we want to hold on and we want to like, you know, cling to what we know for comfort. And, but yet the door was there and I was getting the clear signs to go. And then I would say, you know, I'm facing that juxtaposition right now, right in this moment in my life. And it kind of started with the volcanic eruption a couple of years ago. And right before, like, right up leading to the volcanic eruption for about a month, I knew that something was going to go down. And about six months before that, I had this really, really profound six weeks. I don't want to give too many details to like incriminate myself, but I was working with some very powerful plant medicines for about six weeks and just sleeping in front of these big pots and drinking a lot of medicine and going really deep and I'll just say that I wasn't in the U.S. just to help this storyline, um, but I re- it was like it was like the cocoon of just like so much transformation, and I knew I was at that crossroads at that moment in my life too. That so much of actually what I'm teaching in the curriculum right now came out of that time, and it was really painful and beautiful and all the things. And then, and I knew that I needed to change uh, and restructure my life in a really big way. And then a few months later, I had a friend tell me, oh, Michael Pollan is about to come out with How to Change Your Mind. And it wasn't released yet. It was six months from release date. But because I was also in the health and wellness space, I had been following his other work. And I just knew in that moment, I had a dream that... And and I was driving down the road and it was like green light, green light, green light. And I knew that it was time to come out of the psychedelic closet and that this was really my path was to help share what these medicines can help us with in our lives and how they can really help us like live in such a fundamentally different way to anchor us into this next chapter of human history and the night before the earthquake started happening right before the volcanic eruption i had a really deep solo sit with the medicine and this really unique thing happened that i had never experienced in all my years working with psychedelics it was like the full expression of what it means to surrender my life like i was having this like this tumultuous like crossroads of like feeling the call to step out of the psychedelic closet and like really come out in this way and And then, and I, in this moment, I just had this moment of like really praying with great spirit and like laying down my life on that altar and saying, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready for whatever needs to happen here for this next chapter. I'm I'm ready. And I just felt it so completely in my heart. And it was like, okay, how can I be the greatest service to humanity and then I picked up my guitar and I was just received a full song all in one swoop. And that's only happened a few times. And it was trust in the great unknown and trust that the way will be shown and trust that the highest will unfold. And then the next morning I woke up to the literally the earth shaking under my feet. And that week there were thousands and thousands of earthquakes until I was in the garden and we caught word from Henry, ran over and said, hey, we just found out, we just heard that the road split open in the subdivision that's right above our land and lava started flowing and we should probably consider like starting to move And so we all came together in the garden and we were planning for an event the next night and we said, okay, it's time to go. It's time to evacuate. So we just spent the next two weeks um, getting as much stuff out as possible. And it was the most traumatic experience of my life. And yet the only thing going through my head the whole time were the few lines from that song, Trust in the Great Unknown. And it was like the medicine, just hyper portal, interdimensional hand reaching out saying, hey, you're about to go through the most fucking crazy experience of your life but I got you. You're going to get through the other side and it's going to be a whole new chapter. And really on the other side of that, you know, I went through the most intense dark night of the soul, but then I stepped out and launched the, the most successful retreat of my 10 year retreat career. You know, it was such, um, and I like so much depths of grief and letting go and pain and just, just bowing at the altar of impermanence. And that's real fucking Jedi training right there. But when you actually touch fear like that, then you can come to know the nature of fearlessness. And when I stepped out with my new psychedelic leadership brand, which is a whole story in and of itself. It's been such, it's just been, it's like my, It now this is my altar. This is my altar for creating. And so, you know, we all go through these times and my experience of that rug being pulled is just the micro of what's happening on the macro. But the people who are going through it now, who are feeling those threads being pulled and the unraveling happened, have faith trust in this process. You are being like strengthened right now as a bodhisattva to help other people on the path of this transition. And these are the skill sets that we're learning. And the skill set, it's not just a skill set, it's a mindset. And it's what I call a heart set. And it's learning how to align mindset, skill sets, and heart sets all together.
0: One of the ideas that has been coming up for me actually just yesterday and I think I've felt into it a couple of times before but it landed really poignantly yesterday and it's essentially the idea that um, plants have been co-evolving with animals for as long as there's been living organisms reproducing and that it seems to be that the evolutionary path of animals has led to sapiens and sapiens slowly developed a culture that is fundamentally um on a course to destroy life on the planet and we tend to not think of plants as evolutionary equals in the sense that they've been going through the evolutionary process just as long as we have well longer Longer, and that they might have something to say, and that um, it feels like if I feel into human history, you know, to the degree that it's recorded, that there's been this constant, slowly increasing revolution of plants finding their way into Mm -hmm. human culture in such a way to try to change the way. Mm these sapiens are orienting to how they interact with the earth and that it feels like the plants have are the loudest quote unquote that they've ever been in this transition stage because it feels like we're just a couple of generational cycles away of potentially uh ending the game of life on the planet and it feels like my experiences with psychedelics specifically plant-based ones you can make the argument that all of them on some level go back to plants but the ones that are closest Mm -hmm. to their full plant integrity they seem it feels almost like they're trying to put their consciousness into us in a way to show us that there's a different way of playing the game of life that is like how the plants play Mm -hmm. and that if we don't change over to that way of playing the game uh, at the very least, we're going to self-exterminate, but at the worst, we might end the whole game of life on earth and that it feels like you are one of the humans that they have most uh, <laughs> got to commit. Uh-huh. And so I'm curious if that resonates and uh, what comes up as you hear that.
1: Yeah, I uh, I love that perspective and that narrative And I also just want to say how much I love the name of your podcast, The Myths That Make Us. When Henry first told me that, I was like, oh, snap, that is so good. (laughs) I totally got it right away. And um, yeah, so uh, Dennis McKenna, who is also just such a genius, he's such a brilliant man. He came on to my podcast, episode number three, and he's just so poetic. And he calls, he said, plant medicines are like the neurotransmitters of the Gaian mind here to tell us to wake up right and so and there's something that's like so beautiful about that notion and and you know from an indigenous perspective or a shamanic worldview that of course we're in co-creative allyship with plant medicines you know when you ask a shaman well how did you discover that this plant was good for this or did this and it's like oh well the plant told me You know, of course we're in communication. I mean, there is so much that we could say here, but we just, you know, from our Western culture, we're not taught to pay attention to the subtlety of energy than maybe the way another culture is. Like, for example, the sea gypsies in Thailand, you know, they're raised to, like, pay attention to nature in a different way. When the tsunami hit in, in I think it was 2004, like, thousands and thousands of people died, but they saw it coming, like, days and days before. You know, they saw the subtleties, the way that the wind was blowing, and the way that the ocean was starting to change, and paying attention to subtle dimensions of energy. And because of that, you know, they brought their whole tribe up, up. Pill, and they all survived while a lot of other people died who weren't are just not taught to pay attention in a certain way. And so I think essentially what plant medicines are here to do is to help us to pay more attention to what we're paying attention to. And that's a unique kind of training. And that's essentially the content that I create for my more advanced training programs. How do we train the mind to pay attention to what we're paying attention to, to the space in between, to the relationship, you know, to the dynamic of energy and vibration and frequency, which, and this is of course where, you know, quantum mechanics and science overlaps with shamanic worldview. I mean, there's no question in my mind, like Tesla said, if you want to understand the secrets of the universe, you have to understand energy and vibration. vibration and frequency. And I think that plant medicines are just helping us to perceive what's already there is that everything is in motion. And, and uh, so my mind like really thinks in Venn diagrams, that's just like how it works in my like visual inner visual field. So it's like the Venn diagram of like quantum mechanics, shamanism, plant medicines, psychedelic science, and then Eastern philosophy, because Eastern philosophy is also saying the same thing, you know, that we are energy, that everything is energy and we're made of it. And that we spend our whole t- lives like identifying or, or trying to build this identity construct to be safe and comfortable amongst the constant fluidity of change. You know, the teachings of that, we're always trying to trying to find that solid ground to stand on, but everything is actually always in flux. And that instead of being afraid of it all the time, you know, and like emotionally suppressing that, because like rationally sitting here, we could say, of course, we know that everything is changing all the time. But isn't it ironic that there are, there's this body of wisdom that has been passed through the generations for thousands and thousands of years just to get humans to get this one point that we're all impermanent. Like, of course, we're impermanent, but yet emotionally, that's incredibly hard for us to make peace with. And so, It's And and I think that that's this notion of fluid energy. So then we could add another circle on the Venn diagram, which is flow, flow states, not just flow state peak performance, but flow state living. And then we could put another one that's like really getting back to the start of this, which is inspired living. And, And inspiration is a frequency. It's something that moves us to come alive and to take purposeful action in our lives. And so I think plant medicines are here to... Wake us up to more of ourselves. And this is also on the Venn diagram where creativity would come in. You know, as Einstein said, we can't solve our problems at the same level of thinking that created them. And plant medicines have a way of helping us to shake up that neural snow globe, to try to see, even just for a moment, that this identity construct is all made up. And that the more that we actually see that, and the more that we stop living within the identity of, It is this way. It is that way. And, you know, we're living in this era that that's at an all-time high with the level of polarity and division that we're seeing on the planet right now. That narrative of clinging to beliefs, clinging to thought processes, clinging to this is the way it is. I am right. I know this to be true. Like we could all just take a deep breath and just see that it's just all made up. It's all narrative. It's all story. And that if we let go of the narrative of this is my identity, this is who I am, then maybe just maybe we can have a novel idea, a novel insight, a new way of thinking that would actually help us uncover solutions to some of the greatest challenges we collectively face. And it's high time that we get on the ship because there's a big leaky hole in it and we're all in it together. So we, we kind of really need to figure it out. (laughs) That's where my, my perspective on it.
0: The question that arises is what is your vision for the more beautiful world? Our hearts know is possible that you are ushering by the, um, myth, that you are trying to offer the people that you work with and to give some context to that question, I feel clearly that you are a visionary and that you are trying to create the beautiful models that could serve hopefully as experiences that could help bring leaders specifically, or, you know, high performing individuals for lack of a better word, people who are ready. Um, to go through this womb, this cocoon, Mm -hmm. this rebirthing, because there is a intuition of what could be done that is not currently being done because most of the people in power um, haven't crossed into the new story. Does that question make sense?
1: Kind of. I mean, there's so many ways I feel like we could approach that from, you know, there's just like so many angles, I mean, I would just love to share like the, the vision of what is coming next. I mean, there's a lot that's coming down my personal pipeline of visions. Um, And one of them, I just feel in this moment that feels appropriate to speak to is just the, the next round of... Um, retreats that I'm really excited to be leading, which is, you know, with COVID, I've taken a bit of a a retreat hiatus, as pretty much everyone has in the service industry. But it's been an opportunity for me to go back to graduate school. And so I'm actually pursuing a master's in science right now in a program called Creativity Studies and Change Leadership. And so I'm, I'm also training in advanced creative problem facilitation, problem solving facilitation for corporate teams. And so I'm really excited to be weaving that into my retreats where I'm focusing more on alternative teams who are starting to see the value of working with plant medicines as like also a way of building team building, you know, frameworks, and then weaving in this creative problem solving facilitation. And I think for me, that feels like a very high level way that I can influence a lot of change on this planet. And then weaving in these other modalities, um, embodiment practices, team building practices. And um, Eastern philosophy is really the bedrock upon which I, so much is built. Um, but within that, you know, I just I hold visions of more community living, more st- structural change on a government level that will allow for easier community living, I think is such a big block right now. You know, and a lot of people are making the move. Um, I really imagine just having these spaces, these co creative work creation stations. Like, I almost bought 100 acres of uh, land in Costa Rica last year. I was so close. I was like going into sign, and there was a problem with, with the easement. But calling together people who want to build communities where we have like a main creative space, really bringing in like creatives, people creating in whatever capacity they're creating. And then everyone having their own little homes, private spaces, but shared community spaces as well is definitely a big vision that I'm holding for a more beautiful world our hearts know as possible and also to help inspire people to like really start redefining what success means like I consider yeah. myself to be very successful in my life and FYI I live right now in a 20 foot long bus converted into a tiny home and I poop in a compost toilet you know, but what I have value is like, I have fruit trees and uh, coconut trees, and I have birds that are around me all the time. And I live a mile from the ocean and I, you know, and, and so it's like redefining what's really important. And, and that takes spaciousness people need to unbusy themselves for just enough time to like reevaluate and reassess and so those moments of when things really fall apart in our lives it's actually such a good time to reevaluate and reassess like you know, gosh, who was it? Someone like Jim Carrey was like, God, I wish everyone would just get famous already. So you can like realize how stupid it really is. And it's the same thing with money. Like so many of the people I coach, I coach one of like the, the, the top MDs in all of the U S and you know, it's like, and and the realization is like, it's not about the money. It's not the money is not really what's important here. It's the way that we live, how we choose to show up with presence in the very real moments of our everyday lives, and how we choose to embody that presence and make direct contact with life that's the thing, you know, that's what it that's what fulfillment really is. And restructuring our lives in a way that supports like for me, my highest value is dancing with the frequency of inspiration. And I mean that in like the least spiritual woo way possible. <laughs> woo way. <laughs> that's so funny. Yeah. Um, but I <laughs> oh, only some people are going to find that funny, but that's okay. Um, but I, I really construct my whole life to nurture my creative channel. And even the narrative that I hold around my creative channel actually is the scaffolding for which I build my life upon. And I think that that's also just such a, you know, the myths that make us my myth that makes me is that I am a creative being that my body is literally a conduit for anchoring my visions into reality. And so I build my whole life to support that creative channel and the choices that, I'm, that I make, and what I say yes to, and what I say no to, and how I commit to my sleep. You know, being successful is also like being a professional athlete. <laughs> like, you have to sleep well. If you want to yep. be like a thought leader, you actually have to treat your body well and nourish your cup and all the things. So anyways, there's like a lot of different tangents we could go on there, but I love I'll pause. It so much.
0: <laughs> One of the things that feels very alive in me and seems very <clears throat> difficult the wrong word, but that I can feel that as long as I keep showing up to it, um, a beautiful epiphany will occur because that's genuinely or generally my process. But it's this call to cultivate an intentional thought group that will begin to do the very hard work of um, being able to sense make, for lack of a better word. Yeah. And that I feel that no one around me, including me, really has any idea how hard this is going to be, Mm -hmm. that everyone I know is terrible at sense-making, and that almost no one seeks to try to disprove their own beliefs about what it is that they believe that makes them feel good about the myth that they already have about themselves. But I feel very called to try to create this. Yeah. And it feels like um, this would be a really interesting like, work model for people listening about um, how they can uh, essentially bring the things that you're learning through the creativity research and the um, leadership transformation studies mm-hmm. that feels like it feeds the next dream that everyone that i know who's kind of in a similar space as me including most of the people who are listening to this podcast there's a genuine call to create like communal living Mm -hmm. but one of my deep intuitions is that almost none of us have the emotional maturity at least the people around me at my age to do that in a way where we wouldn't make the same mistakes as many of the attempts of people and communities in the past have made where it kind of devolves into what we would pejoratively call a cult. (laughs) And that it's, it's, it's because there are fundamental challenges that the people who did it before were not emotionally mature enough to Mm -hmm. handle and to hold. And so, um, What, Based off of the things that you've learned so far in your graduate study and just on your life path, um, what would you recommend as like the very beginnings of how to begin to bring creativity and like identity change, which is essentially what that other half of your graduate degree feels like to me, uh, to people who are interested in that?
1: Well, I mean, you kind of just like set me up to just promote my (laughs) microdosing mastermind. I mean, you really just like set up this stage of like, when you were like, wow, I wish I could like put together this like group of thought leaders to like come together and support each other. I mean, that was the vision for the microdosing mastermind. And the whole content and the way that I frame it is Content around set and setting, but taking the notion of set and setting to a whole fucking new level that I don't know anyone else who's really talking about it from that perspective that actually creates a cocoon for you to go in and start deconstructing your sense of self and getting very purposeful about what that looks like on the other side. So there's a couple of things, you know, and that to me is, is, first of all, it's a long process, you know, these, these, <laughs> if you, if, if you were to think about it, cause if you were just to like give up your identity, like in a snap of a finger, that's what we could really call like a psychotic break,
0: yes. you
1: know? So we have to be careful actually about this is a gradual process and good for good reason, yep. you know? And so that was really the intention of bringing together. And I had this vision actually come through a ceremony and I, put together a few different program threads all in one program. And it sold out within three weeks it oversold, you know, and I had three times the amount of applications than spots. And I chose the right people. And we, you know, got the really filled like just this amazing group. We have 30 people and we start tomorrow and it's a three month journey. And the next time I do this, I'm going to make it a year because that's really, I feel like what the container requires is a year long program. And so I'm totally down to like, we should talk about maybe collaborating on something fun. But I would say the other thing around like the whole community living is that I think people just have also like a very glorified vision of what it means to like, I have a gecko who's like trying to eat some of my mango here. This is the glorified vision of what living in Hawaii is like. Um, Sorry for the background noise, but, um, you know, I think people do have My
0: intuition just, yeah, that whatever idea just came up that you're about to articulate, that there's some type of wisdom from the nature around you that's coming through the gecko, trying to eat the mango that has a symbolic... Yeah. part to this and maybe that's my story but maybe we'll see so what was the idea that was
1: well it up? was just that I think people okay well that's funny because that just sparked this notion that people are like <laughs> oh my god I love geckos and I'm like I love geckos too and they poop over everything gecko poop is like a real thing that you got to like deal with all the fucking time so there's this glorified vision you know like living off grid in British Columbia and we'd have friends come from Vancouver and be like yes I want to like Come and like do work on the land. And then two hours in, they're like, oh my God, this is like so intense. This is such hard work, you know? And so, I mean, I've been living off grid and off the land for 15 years. It's become second nature to me, but I watch people come from the cities to the land all the time. I mean, I've hosted hundreds upon hundreds of people for retreats and it's a process. Even just people becoming aware of electricity use and how to like not, you know, Keep the lights on all night because we live off grid with solar panels and like conscious awareness of energy consumption is like such a huge process for people to become aware of in and of itself. M- mindfulness around harvesting food and what putting back into the earth really requires. I mean, we just have we're so disconnected. So I think that there's such a fundamental sort of training restructuring that happens for people when they really start to understand what it takes to live in alignment in right relationship with this earth but that's what makes you stronger (laughs) that strengthens your spirit you know and so it's like yeah and I think that that's also comes from that training upbringing that I had like when you dedicate and you train it's like you move through those challenging moments but it's so rewarding there's so much like fertile fertile ground there to grow and so yeah yeah I think like Gosh, what was the question about like the creativity piece? I feel like I just went in two totally different directions with that question.
0: (laughs) And maybe that is the beginning of the answer to the creativity piece was, um, how could I bring, um, what you've learned about creativity to the beginnings of this type of container? Mm -hmm. Um, Because it feels like something that is core Mm -hmm. about the creative process that actually feels like it mirrors the wisdom of the psychedelic process, which actually feels like the thing that the Western psyche needs the most is that fundamental in the creative process is essentially alchemy. Mm -hmm. And it's that things come together in such a way where it actually destroys. And then from the destruction, there's a potential. And then something that you couldn't even have guessed before the alchemical process started, (laughs) created it. Um, I guess I was just curious, if you're going to bring a bunch of rigid egos into a container that (laughs) implied in the container is going to be transformation, are there (laughs) things that you've learned from the creative research that could facilitate that?
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, we could have like a two-hour conversation, about like <laughs> probably like a two-week conversation. But for before those kinds of retreats, I would really do training before people came, and it's it's even just basic stuff. Like, well, first of all, there's this great quote, which is, uh, "Creativity is the defeat of habit by originality." So, learning ah. how to shake things up. Like learning how to just notice the habits that you have. And we're not just talking habits of body. It's also habits of mind. And so even, so I recorded like a whole solo episode. I think it was episode number 15 or 18 that was all about cultivating the mindset of curiosity and just how valuable that is by asking questions. And this relates also to, uh, our somatic experience. Like when we're having a conversation with someone who disagrees with us, for example, and we notice that like sort of maybe trigger in the chest and we start to like contract a little bit that the moment we, that's, that's, Narrow mind. So I love Pema Chodron. She's my primary spiritual teacher in Eastern philosophy of the lineage of Chogyam Champa Rinpoche. And, you know, Pema says pretty much the whole spiritual path can be defined as going from narrow mind to open mind. And so, it, in essence, that's really all of it. So, how, what are the tools that help us go from narrow mind to open mind? And there's, you know, this is such a big part of my training programs. But even just learning how to cultivate the attitude of curiosity. So, when we're talking to someone who disagrees with us, asking questions like, "How did you, how did you arrive at that at that conclusion?" Rather than, you know, and right now we're watching just such division between people. But curiosity is like yeah. a real bridge that helps us literally bridge the gap between the division that we're witnessing. And even just trying to stay somatically open. And that's just such a way it's a so subtle, but the way that we cling to what we believe to be true, and just even starting to become more aware of that, like the next time you come into a disagreement with somebody, what are you trying to hold on to? And what does it feel like to breathe to open your chest, open your heart, open your mind? And Actively try to lean in with curiosity. And a great way is doing that by doing that with like open-ended questions and just exploring, you know. I'm so curious how you arrived at that conclusion. Tell me more about that. You know, maybe I I oh, I, I have a different perspective, but I'm really curious to know more about your perspective, even using the word curious. I'm really curious about and noticing the ways that our words create our myths, our words create our reality. I mean, I'm preaching to the choir here, I'm sure. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's even just things like that, like basic things. I mean, there's advanced like creative problem solving processes and tools like Scamper and Six Hats and, you know, the whole modality. There's real, very in-depth frameworks. But even just starting to do simple things like take a different route to work or start brushing your teeth with your other hand, just starting to shake things up because it's creativity is just the defeat of habit by originality. Another Mm. big one is that we learn in school and and it's so obvious right but it's just creating um environments where you learn to practice deferring judgment so that's mm. really great in a team building session so like if you're working with Aubrey and a bunch of people and you guys are doing like brainstorming sessions i mean there's a whole bunch of tools that you can bring into that but one of them is just setting up like on the table right at the beginning saying like okay guys these are the ground rules for this session number 1 we're going to go for quantity over quality just Put all your ideas out as much as possible because the way the mind works is we go for like the low hanging fruit and we're not really trained in what's called divergent thinking, which is one of the key components of creativity and the creative process. And then we're going to defer judgment. So we're going to like most silly ideas, everything is welcome. And actually this notion of deferring judgment takes so much practice because we're so geared towards self-criticism, like mostly of ourselves, but then we take that self-criticism and we also point it in other directions as well. So I mean, there's like a million tools, but just starting to sort of like loosen up in your life. You know, I had this one client who three sessions in, I just knew there was like just a lot of stuck energy. And then in a passing comment, he mentioned something like that. He doesn't dance. He hates dancing. And I was like, (laughs) wow, do you listen to music? And he was like, never. And I was like, oh my God, that makes so much sense. Like, okay. Like dancing and music is such an easy tool for how we can just start moving that flow. And that's when I get my best ideas and even start becoming more aware. Where do you get your best ideas? I get my best ideas when I'm on my walk when I'm on my walk, and when I'm in my microdosing morning flow, that's why I work out with a huge whiteboard next to my morning flow. And people are like, okay, set and setting. But like, like I said, I designed my whole life to support my creative channel. I cannot Mm. tell you a morning microdosing morning flow where I was not utilizing my whiteboard. And I bought the biggest whiteboard that I could possibly get. And when we're in movement, actually, that's when we get our best ideas. And even just like Committing to capturing those ideas. So, like, I'll use voice memos when I'm walking. Sometimes I walk with a pen and paper because that's when I just get all my best ideas. And if you have the thought, "Oh, I'm just going to remember it and circle back around later," don't do it. Just put it down. Put it down. Capture the idea because they're fleeting. They're fleeting ideas that come through, and we often don't remember them. So, just basic suggestions like that. I could talk about this forever, though, and it would be fun to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, we clearly have
0: to do. <laughs> A seven-hour podcast. <laughs> um, I'm I'm going to switch gears a little bit because, you know, we do have a time constraint on this first one. But again, we should do a seven-hour one. That would be great. The question is, um, what was your favorite story as a child, either through books or a movie or a television show or something that was told to you? And – um I invite you to tell it to us like you are telling it to a really smart, curious 10-year-old niece as a bedtime story. (laughs) Like She's like, LD, please tell me a story. And uh, you're not reciting it from memory, but you're telling it from your heart in the way and in the tone that you would tell it as a bedtime story to a niece, a smart and curious 10 year old niece. So, uh, what is the story? Okay. And then will you please tell us the story?
1: Okay. So when I was 10, I, Okay. So this is funny because my oldest brother is 10 years older than me. I'm so sorry, Clayton. I'm not trying to like incriminate you in any way, but when, when, when I was young, he was actually the first person to tell me these stories of his psychedelic journeys. And so he would tell me that he would eat these magical mushrooms and he would, he got into this Boat, and he was canoeing across this incredible open vast lake, and these mountains were just all around him. And he was in British Columbia, which is why when I left Montreal, I flew right out to BC. So it was like the earliest imprintings of magical, mythical stories were actually of my brother's real psychedelic journeys. And he would tell me that he would be walking mm. through these places and he would see these giant frogs. And then there was just these giant, massive toads that he would see them. And he'd be like totally awestruck with these just magical places that he was in and that he was just in such a state of awe and wonder. And he told me that he would also... Spend like hours and hours, like twenty-four hours, climbing up these mountains with his skis. He was a uh, what is it called? Teleporting, you know, with the, with, um, mm, I
0: don't know. You
1: know where where the skis are like not attached at the back. I forget the name of that. But he would he was like hardcore athlete, and he would go up the mountains like way 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 backcountry skiing, and he would drop acid at the top, and then he would ski down. And it would take him like 24 hours to get to the top and then he would ski down. And it it was like the memory of him telling me about the toads for some reason, like the toads and the mountains and the lake and... You know, I can't say if that's accurate at this point that like that was an accurate story, but it's just the story that I've told myself over the years that got you know imprinted in me. And so it was just this, this experience of like visualizing him, like getting in this canoe, which I've had some really funny, very high LSD boat moments. (laughs) So I I don't know, maybe there's like full circle moments that played themselves out. (laughs) Oh God. Mm Mm-hmm
0: so the invitation slash challenge is don't make me do it (laughs) and i invite you to close your eyes and feel into it as i talk to give you a moment to drop in is if you could take the core of that memory and that feeling and from your heart tell us a bedtime story like it was a myth Like we were a curious and smart and relentless 10 year old niece asking you to tell us a story. Like, we want a story. Give us a story. Okay. Um, Will you please tell us that story in that energy?
1: Okay. So I just want. Once upon a time. I want to state, too, that uh, this is this is going to just be a story that has nothing to do with my brother, though. I'll just, like, did, like, let that go there. Correct. Okay. Yes. <laughs> mm, once upon a time, there was this young brother and sister who were traveling through the forest, and they were walking with backpacks on, and they came across these mushrooms sprouting out the ground. And so they they stopped and they looked at each other and they felt this intuitive call to eat these mushrooms. And they said they were going to trust this process. And it was just the way the light was shining through this opening in the canopy forest. And it was like this illumination of these mushrooms so it really caught their eye and they thought okay this that's the sign like there's darkness all around the ground except for this like one little spot on the ground that was just illuminated with these two perfect mushroom caps and there were two of them and they had all of their supplies they had enough supply to embark on a journey for some hours even days and so they felt like that was the sign to eat these mushrooms and so they bent over and as they bent over they bumped their heads they they bumped into to each other's heads and they <laughs> and then they giggled and picked up the mushrooms and <laughs> decided to eat them at the same time and the intention was to heal their family lineage and that was the message that they had received from the the mushroom medicine it was like there's a little face on the mushroom medicine that was speaking to them each and so they lifted up their the the mushroom next to their ear and the mushroom whispered in each of their ears the intention that they wanted to have for this moment and the the sister received the message that it was time to heal the family lineage on the mother side and and then the brother picked up the the, the the mushroom right up into the ear and the mushroom whispered the same thing It said, it's time to heal your paternal lineage all the way through space and time, through generations, forwards and backwards. And the brother was like, oh my goodness, I just received the same message that you did. So, okay, we're going to do this now. We're going to eat the mushroom. And so they put the mushroom in their mouth and and it tasted like cotton candy it tasted so good it was like unlike this any any other mushroom they'd ever had before and then they decided to just walk in silence through this pathway and there was this fork in the road and they had to make a decision about which way to go and so they decided to veer down towards the left that brought them to this beautiful lake with three steps coming down and there was this beautiful boat with an oar in it And so they decided to get into the boat and push off the shore of safety, the shore of the known and embark into the unknown. And while they were paddling through this water that was so tranquil, they decided to just take a moment and take a breath and look up into the sky and watch these clouds come over. And this cloud had this face on it. And they both looked up and the brother was like, Hey, do you see this cloud? And the sister was like, yeah, I, I do see that cloud. And it looks like it's trying to communicate to us. And so the sister was like, well, what, what is it saying? And it was like, okay, let's just listen. Let's listen. What is the cloud saying? And the cloud revealed a memory because these were actually twins. The brother and sister were twins. They were born at the same time. And so the cloud revealed this memory of this moment before they were born. And they closed their eyes and they could see this imprint in both of their DNA from this moment that happened and ch- this prenatal moment. And at the same time, they both watched this knot to unwind, this energetic knot unwind. And they both had this feeling of just opening and releasing and letting go. And the sister said, Oh, I feel the healing of my grandmother. And the brother said, I feel the healing of our grandfather. And they decided to keep paddling. And there was these big toad pads. They were coming into like closer to this one shore. And they were in this like little interesting area with all of these toad pads. And then these giant toads started hopping from one lily pad to the next. And the toad looked at the brother and the sister and it started talking to them. And the toad said, your grand, your great, great, great grandmother and your great, great, great grandfather have a message for you. And the children were like, oh my goodness, this toad is speaking to us. Like, what do you want to say? And the message, the toad said, the message that your great, great, great grandparents have for you is to live free, to live free in your life and to be adventurous spirits that push off the shores of safety and that have the courage to keep forging onto the path of the great unknown and to trust that and when you feel the fear of standing at that edge of the precipice as you look out into the great unknown trust that feeling if it has any level of excitement in the fear then follow that go that way that that is your signpost for healing all of our lineages and then you want to follow that sign and follow that trust in your heart and that you are the ones that we have all been waiting for.
0: Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. And my, the reason I ask that question, why it's my favorite question, is that it feels like it's batting averages a thousand, that when people <laughs> tell it from the heart, it's their myth.
1: Hmm. Oh my gosh, Eric, I love you. I really do.
0: (laughs) I love you too.
1: (laughs) This is the beginning of a long friendship. I'm going to come visit you in Austin, okay?
0: We are here. We are here. We are here. Mm -hmm. So the last question is I invite you to imagine that you have lived the life that you are called to live. Mm
1: Mm-hmm
0: you have done and bore the fruits that are a natural process of living that life. And you are arriving at the last day of your life. Mm. And you have this felt sense that when I go to sleep tonight, it will be my last. How would you want to spend that last day? Who would you want to spend it with and where?
1: What a question. Uh, I just feel things so deeply in my life. Gosh, just feel the tears. Hmm. I just want to be with the people that I love, you know, surrounded with the people that I love. And my prayer is that I really have a positive influence in those lives throughout all space and time, you know, that this path that I can dedicate to the the real, the path of awakening and really genuinely from that heart space of like going from narrow mind to open mind. And the more that I can let go of the shore of clinging to who I think I am and what I think I'm capable and setting off into the unknown and being an example for other people to do the same that I hope my life path can be and influence of liberation and awakening and that's you know even just for one heart and mind is a success it's a success story in and of itself and I feel that question so deeply just of just really bowing at my own altar of death you know and really just in awe of this thing we call life and just like the sheer absurdity of it all and the irony of it all and the just beauty of it all and the pain of it all and that may I be at the end of my life surrounded with those that I love with the animals that I love on the land that I love and that you know may this may humanity still be chugging along at that point you know
0: and if you could leave a single message on a piece of paper for, uh, the next generation to read, either yeah. if that's directly children or the loved one's children, what would you leave on that piece of paper? And hey, you write this right before yeah. you go to sleep.
1: Dance with the inspiration, the dance with the frequency of inspiration just dance with that, that, that frequency, that, that life force that moves you towards inspired action. Just dedicate your life to dancing with that.
0: Laura Don, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your myth. And I look forward to the seven hour conversation to come. <laughs> thank you.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Eric.